I thought what I'd do today is we're in Mark chapter 3, and just to get us oriented, uh, last week there was a really um, interesting phrase we read in Mark chapter 3, verse um, 5. This is where Jesus is teaching them about healings on the Sabbath and how the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And it's okay to do good deeds on the Sabbath, you Pharisees, who don't think it's good for me to do good deeds. And by the way, you're thinking of killing me on the Sabbath day, and somehow you think in your mind that's better than me healing. And so anyway, these are the people he's up against. And a real interesting verse was 5. He said, after looking around at them with anger grieved at their hardness of heart. So we talked about how this word anger being attributed to Jesus, it's the only time in the Bible where it says, you know, he was angry. And Mark, as you remember, often is able to write for us what Jesus is thinking. Okay, he, 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 his gospel often will tell us Jesus' thoughts or his emotions. So he, this is the only place in the New Testament you read Jesus was angry at them and the next word is he was also grieved so we were struck by the character of God he is angry because he's displeased with their unrighteousness he is intensely displeased so the sense of judgment on people who are unrighteous which is everybody but at the same time next word he's grieving so he's merciful and he doesn't want them to be this way so really poignant uh, a combination of two words there and we talked to very powerful to me the idea of how Jesus of course on the cross praying for forgiveness for the people that are spitting at him and scourging him and yelling at him and all that so uh, that's that's his character he was angry and grieved at the same time and then we ended last week with verse 6 of chapter 3 which is you know ominous Right? The Pharisees went out and immediately began conspiring with the Herodians against him as to how they might destroy him. So this is where the really intense uh, uh, persecution of Jesus really gets going, and we'll see it more and more throughout the gospel. What I want to do today, I want to read the whole chapter. Again, Mark, more than any other gospel, I believe, is meant to be heard. It's meant to be just heard and I imagine in the early church, they just read through the whole thing and people sat there and listened. And we've talked about how this gospel lends itself to that. You can just listen to it and you won't fall asleep because it's so action-packed and immediately and next and next and next. And it's really colorful gospel. So uh, every few weeks I like to read a large section. So I think this week I'll read the entire chapter 3. And as I read it, uh, pay attention to a few things. One is, um, of course, the people. Look at the different people and their responses to Jesus. You're going to see really five different groups of people that will have varying responses. So pay attention to them, and I'll quiz you afterwards, and we'll just go through who, who are the actors and what was their response. And uh, we'll also hit this really interesting section where about blasphemy against the Holy Spirit as being the only unforgivable sin. Uh, and hopefully we'll have time to talk about that because that's the difficult uh, passage to understand. And then we'll also spend a little time on the 12 apostles because they're uh, chosen in this chapter of Mark. So I'll go ahead and read uh, all 30, 35 chap- verses 
and, uh, and then we'll talk about it. So Mark chapter 3, verse 1. He entered again into a synagogue, and a man was there whose hand was withered. They were watching him to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. He said to the man with the withered hand, Get up and come forward. And he said to them, Is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath, to save a life or to kill? But they kept silent. After looking around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately began conspiring with the Herodians against him as to how they might destroy him. Jesus withdrew to the sea with his disciples, and a great multitude from Galilee followed, and also from Judea, and from Jerusalem, and from Idumea, and beyond the Jordan, and the vicinity of Tyre and Sidon, a great number of people heard of all that he was doing and came to him. He told his disciples that a boat should stand ready for him because of the crowd, so that they would not crowd him. For he had healed many, with the result that all those who had afflictions pressed around him in order to touch him. Whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they would fall down before him and shout, You are the Son of God. And he earnestly warned them not to tell who he was. And he went up on the mountain and summoned those whom he himself wanted. And they came to him. And he appointed twelve so that they would be with him and that he could send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out the demons. And he appointed the twelve, Simon, whom he gave the name Peter, and James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James. To them he gave the name Boanerges, which means sons of thunder. And Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon the zealot and Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. And he came home and the crowd gathered again to such an extent that they could not even eat a meal. When his own people heard of this, when his own people heard of this, they went out to take custody of him for they were saying he has lost his senses. The scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying he's possessed by Beelzebul. And he cast out the demons by the ruler of demons. And he called them to himself and began speaking to them in parables. How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. If Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but he is finished. But no one can enter the strong man's house and plunder his property unless he first binds the strong man, and then he will plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins shall be forgiven the sons of men, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin, because they were saying he has an unclean spirit. Then his mother and his brothers arrived, and standing outside, they sent word to him and called him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Behold, your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. Answering them, he said, Who are my mother and my brothers? Looking about at those who were sitting around him, he said, Behold, my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Okay. So there's a lot in that chapter. Who are some of the actors we meet other than Jesus? And let's talk about their reactions to him. <coughs> First, of course, we talked about last week, is we'll talk the Pharisees, right? Obviously antagonistic toward Jesus, 
overtly so, and it just very clearly says that they are interested in conspiring with the law. You know, the Herodians is the, the, the leaders of the government. They're going to conspire with the Herodians to figure out how they might destroy him. And we mentioned last week, too, how normally these two groups are enemies. They don't get along, the Herodians and the Pharisees, but in this case, they decided to conspire together to destroy Jesus. So that's the first group we meet. What's, anyone else that you see there that has an interesting reaction to Jesus? The crowd. The crowd. The it's always there, right. And that's where we can pick up actually right at verse 7 where it says, Jesus withdrew to the sea with his disciples. I know in the original, in fact, the ASV, does anybody still have the ASV? Anyway, the, the original... The Greek says actually something like, um, and Jesus with his disciples withdrew to the sea. So it gives more the impression of they're all together going to the sea. So the, the disciples are withdrawing to the sea. And at the same time, you have this crowd, this great multitude from Galilee is following him. Right. So uh, a couple things to mention about this verse 2 is in... Um, Matthew chapter 12, which is the parallel verse to this scene, after verse 6 where it says they're looking how to destroy him, it says, and Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there. So the idea here is uh, Jesus is partly going to the sea to escape the Pharisees because he knows they're after him. So there's a sense of tension here and he's trying to get away from them. And you also get the sense that he's not really trying to escape the crowd, but it is a pretty intense crowd and, and I'll get to that in a minute when we get down to verse 9. So you get the idea of Jesus and his disciples sort of moving toward the sea to get a little fresh air or get away from the Pharisees and also to, to get um, to prevent from getting crushed really from this great multitude that's following him. And it's not just this multitude from Galilee that's there with them but you can read there that his, what he's doing has spread to Jerusalem and Idumea and beyond the Jordan and the vicinity of Tyre and Sidon and all these people <laughs> coming from all over that area, literally 30, 40, 50 miles away, 100 miles away maybe, that are coming to this to Galilee to probably be healed, like Joel talked about today in John chapter 2. Many people are coming and, and uh, trusting in him or believing in him, but he said that he didn't entrust himself to all of them because he knew what was in their heart. So these people are all really interested in the miracles and they're crowding, crowding him out. And he's aware of the plot of the Pharisees. He knows that danger is lurking ahead for his life. I sort of wanted to title this chapter. Um, I couldn't think of a good title, but it's like um, you get the idea in this chapter that Jesus' ministry is it's like navigating through troubled waters, right? Like an iceberg field or something like that, or, or a minefield, really. He, he, he has a ministry. He's doing good. He's healing people. Some people are coming to him. He has opportunity to teach, but at every turn... Hey, Randy, can you hit the air? Thank you. Uh, but at every turn, there's something there that is, that is um, a little bit inhibitory or, or a little bit of a burden. And I think you see that here in this chapter. So I couldn't really come up with a title, but I do think when you get down to verse 9, after you hear about all these people coming to him, it says he told his disciples in verse 9 that a boat should stand ready and... It's a little boat. The ASV translates it a little boat. So I think the Greek word there implies like a little-ish rowboat, almost like 
you couldn't fit many people in it, and it probably would have been used as like a pulpit for him to just so he'd get out into the sea a little bit, so maybe even a few people, so he could avoid the crowds and probably preach. That's the image you have here, this little boat being put, getting ready. So he's administrating here, and he tells his disciples, you know, get a little boat ready there in the sea. He doesn't say it here, but it's like, in case I need it, in case I need to get out there and escape this crowd, which is, um, you know, closing in on me. And the reason I think that it's more intense than just a happy little crowd walking through, the, through Galilee is because the word that's used there in verse 9 is, um, don't know the exact Greek, but basically the word crowd so that they would not crowd him. It means really so that they would not pressure him or afflict him or distress him. And in ASV it says that they thronged about him. So the idea is that um, it's pressure. They're, they're about to smother him. That's, that's the impression you get. So it's, it's a hindrance to his ministry really more than a benefit. They're so happy, that, but yet it's, it's a burden on him. And I just want to read for you some other sections in the Scripture that use this, this word to give you a sense of what it really means. Matthew seven thirteen, Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small, and the way is narrow. So the way is narrow. It's pressured, right? It's a narrow way which leads to life, and there are a few who find it. I think you see that here in this story. It's a narrow way. It's pressure. It's not so easy. Paul uses this word quite a bit, actually, and it's often translated afflicted. But if we are afflicted, it's for your comfort and salvation, 2 Corinthians 1, 6. 2 Corinthians 4, 7, we have this treasure in earthen vessels so that the surpassing greatness of the power of God, and not from ourselves, for we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. So we're pressured, we're distressed, but we're not crushed. And Paul uses that word a lot in, in his uh, writings. So it's a verb. The noun of this word is translated is used a lot in the New Testament and is translated tribulation, afflictions, persecution. So I don't want to make too much of the use of this one word, but I think it does paint the picture of what Jesus is facing with the crowds. Um, and um, you'll see also, just as a side note, that in the next chapter 4 is... Uh, sort of break in the action, really. You get a, a parable about the seeds that are cast along the road, and it, the whole chapter is dedicated to that parable. But in verse 16 and 17, he says, Mark chapter 4, in a similar way, these are the ones on whom seed was sown on the rocky places, who, when they heard the word, immediately receive it with joy, and they have no firm root in themselves, but are only temporary. Then, when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately they fall away. The same word here, when, when the pressure comes, when the tribulation comes, when the difficulty comes, then they immediately fall away. Making the point to me that Jesus' ministry, even though it's fruitful, with all the people coming, is still very difficult. It's like he's navigating through a minefield. His whole ministry is like this. And the lesson for us is in the same way. Ministry to help people or to witness for people or to teach the word or whatever is difficult and it's like pressure and it's not always just easy sailing, right? 
And I think we have the great example of Jesus' ministry for us, and it can inspire us and help us to know what's coming our way. And um, we, um, in the world, have tribulation, but we take courage because he's overcome the world. And that word, tribulation, is the same word here. And that, that point is so true. I don't need to pause us here. But Please, speak up. I the, like uh, <laughs> if, we, if we're willing to recognize needs and, and uh, initiate opportunities to help meet needs, we, we realize that it's, it's, when we're not active in ministry, it's not because there are not needs. Because there's never not an opportunity. Because there's always needs. And you see that in Jesus' ministry. But mm-hmm. It's because he of, the, of his message and his power I mean, the crowds overwhelmed him mm-hmm. because the need was so great. And that's what moved him to compassion yep. for his creation was because they were burdened by sin. Yep. Uh, it is, yes, exactly. And I think for us, uh, I know you're the same way probably as me, but you know sometimes when there's a can of worms that you're careful to open that with someone, right? And the inhibition to me is often, boy, I don't know if I have the time, the energy to really dig into that. So we might back off. So the, I think I'm uh, sort of saying what the same thing you're saying. We ought to be encouraged as Christians that that's what we do. It's pressure. And we ought to be motivated to take advantage of those opportunities because they're everywhere. Sometimes the fear of man keeps us from opening that can of worms as well. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you would have done it sooner, you know. So. Yep. Well, I fear, what about my can of worms? I got more worms. Yes. <laughs> 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 yeah. Yes. But I think we, we get the point, and it, we expect it's difficult. Ministry is, is tough. We'll get to it in a minute, but they actually, a lot of people thought Jesus was crazy. And we'll, we'll hold off for a minute. We'll talk about reasons why they might have thought he was, he was crazy. But this is part of it. I mean, I think he was just putting himself out there so much, he couldn't even eat. I mean, they couldn't even find food to eat. It says here they were so crowded, and he probably didn't have time to himself, and people were coming from all over, and he was being pressured, and he's got to find a boat to escape it. And uh, pretty radical ministry that he has. And, um, but we'll, we'll get there in a few minutes. Okay, um, verse 10, we're going to encounter here the next group of people. It says, he'd healed many with the result that all those who had afflictions, and another version says plagues, so people who had these really bad plagues and afflictions and diseases were just wanting to touch him. And then verse 11, whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they'd fall down before him and shout, you are the son of God. So there's such interesting uh, insight about these spirits. We see them over and over again, and we've seen them several times already. It's like they're the only ones that know what's going on. I mean, it's right. I mean, everyone else seems a little bit confused, and his apostles don't know what's going on. The people, his family doesn't know what's going on. But repeatedly, it's the demons and the evil spirits, they seem to know. It's really ironic that the, the worst actors know that he's the son of God. But they're still a hindrance to him, right? Because he's constantly telling them, don't. Say it. 
he earnestly warned them not to tell who he was. So even though they're like proclaiming the truth, Jesus, they're a burden to him. They're still a burden. He doesn't want them to proclaim. We've talked before about um, some of the thoughts we have about why he's telling them not to proclaim it. And um, several reasons. One, he, they're not a good witness for him. And two, his time hasn't come. He doesn't, he, Jesus doesn't really want so much people to know. It's almost like he's letting out the information piecemeal because of this issue with the crowds. And so, but for whatever reason, he is constantly telling them, warning them not to say who, who he is. So we have the Pharisees. We have the crowds. We have the demons who are knowledgeable about Jesus' ministry. And then verse 13, we have a scene where Jesus goes up on the mountain and he summoned those whom he himself wanted and they came to him. And he appointed the twelve so that they would be with him and that he could send them out to preach. So going up to a mountain implies the imagery, right, of time with God. This is a special time. It's almost you have the imagery of Moses, and, and often when God's people are called to be alone with him, it's on a mountain. So you have this image of Jesus going to be alone with God. And Luke, actually, his account of this in Luke 6, it's a parallel account, tells us that, and it was at this time that he went off to the mountain to pray, and he spent the whole night in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples to him, and he chose the twelve of them, and he also named them apostles. So Luke's uh, description of this scene tells us before he called them, he was all night long up there alone praying to the Lord. And then he also, Luke tells us, this is when he calls them apostles, his twelve apostles. So I imagine that night when he's praying, he prayed for each one individually, I'm sure, uh, about how they might help him, who he's going to call. Uh, he knows what lies ahead for all of them. They're all going to be martyred eventually. Um, so it must have been a real nice evening of prayer with the Lord, picking these 12 men that would carry the word forth forever. And it says here, he summoned those whom he himself wanted. So another image, just so like Joel told us today, he, he chooses who he wants. It's his prerogative. He chooses those that he wants. And it says they came to him. And so he chooses them and they come. So what I wanted to do, actually, you can see here, I hope you can see that list of the 12 apostles. Uh, I want to go through each of them individually just for a couple of minutes. And I do apologize. I'm supposed to have a chart in one of these books and I forgot it this morning. So I'll do my best to um, remember what it is I wanted to point out about these 12 fellows. But, you know, the, the 12 apostles are listed um, by name four different times in the Bible. Once in Matthew, once in Mark, once in Luke, and then in Acts. Okay, so four different times the 12. Actually, in Acts, it's the 11, because at that point, Judas is, is uh, committed suicide, the betrayer. So, in Acts, he lists 12. And... Um, John doesn't list them by name. He lists them, you know, different areas in his gospel, but he never has a time where he lists all 12, just like, like the other synoptic gospels do. So I thought we could go through these 12 
and uh, just point out a few interesting uh, facts about them. I figured Jesus probably prayed for all of them, so we can spend a few minutes going through. I'd never done this before. We just sort of go through, who's he, who's he, where's he from? And we can do that for just a few minutes. But you'll see, before I do that, when he points to 12, in verse 14, it said, he appointed the 12 so that they would be with him and that he could send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out the demons. So it just the, um, it sort of defines an apostle. They're with him. He appoints them so that he can spend these years with him. He's teaching them. They are seeing him. They're learning from him. He's telling them all things. They're watching him cast out demons. He gives them power. So it's a, it's a unique <coughs> class of people. It's not the everyday Christian in the new church. So it's obvious that that's not the case. So these are really unique people that are given unique powers and they have a unique intimacy with the Lord. And that's why he appointed them, so that they would be with him and he could send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. And you see the same phrase used several times. We'll see it again in chapter 6 of Mark where he um, says they're, they're with him and then he sends them out to preach when he commissions them for their work. But the point being, they need this fellowship with Jesus in order to be effective apostles. They need this time with him to be accurate witnesses and accurate teachers. <coughs> so, let's go through the 12. Uh, the, when they're listed <coughs> in the New Testament, it's never like the authors say, you know, here's the hierarchy. Here's the commander, number one. Here's the lieutenant, and then here's the private. You know, there, there's none of that kind of hierarchy, but it is interesting if you look at the, the four different places where they're listed, you, you can learn something about how, how they interact. And of course, so, so I'll just say this for you. You can break them down into three groups of four, okay? If you look at, um, there's never a formal grouping, but the pattern of their names are really similar whenever they're listed. The... Each of these groupings is the same every time they're listed. So these four are always listed before these four are always listed before these four. Okay, that's just an interesting note. The first person in each one of these groups is always the same person. Okay, I don't know what you can make of that, but Simon's always listed first, every single listing. Philip is always listed first as a part of these other three. And James, the son of Alphaeus, is always listed first after those guys. Um, some of the names are different. Okay, We know, Pe we know Simon it was his real name. He was named Peter the Rock. Do you have an idea why he's named Peter the Rock? There's two different ideas behind that. Well, so that the Catholics, yeah. Right, that's, that's one reason. The Catholics think that... Yeah, well, which may be true, not the first pope, but, I mean, you are the rock on whom I'm building this church. So he's saying, you know, you're the rock. You're going to be the anchor of this new um, apostolic church after I leave. You're, you're the rock. Well, you're the, the first sermon after yep, Pentecost. Right. Right. And then even before Jesus goes in Matthew, he says, you know, Peter, you are the rock on whom I'll build this church. So there is that idea that he, he's the man. He, he's the rock, and everyone else will sort of lean on him. Tim, was it, was it Peter the person, or was it not his faith in his, you know, on this rock? Ah, uh, yeah. Good, good question. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I think you could argue that, but, but the point is, 
he just changed his name to Peter, which means rock. So I think, he, I think it doesn't hurt us to take it either way. Peter's faith is a rock, and then Peter could, is the rock. But he named him Peter for a reason. One reason could be because he, he was, he was going to be the anchor of the new church. He had a position of leadership, and usually when you hear the term uh, cornerstone, you think of, of Christ you know, as a general rule. Right. Well, let's look at that verse. Actually, maybe uh, it's Matthew 16. Well, even if you were to take it that way, I think we just fear that a little bit because that's what the Catholics do. That's right. And they take a, a much bigger leap after that to, to pull off into the first pope and then they are the only church. You know what I mean? So yes. I sometimes we fear that, that, that explanation just because of the, the next jump that they take. But that's also a huge jump that you don't have to take just because you say he's anchor or one of the first leaders in church. That's right. I, I think it's safe to say that he had a strong personality. We know that. And that's the other reason that many of us think he's called Peter. You know, you're the rock. You're, you're it's a strong, strong personality. That may be why he gave him that name. But in it says Matthew 16, look at verse 17. Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I also say to you that you are Peter... And upon this rock, I'll build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. So, um, Ranzel's saying that what he might be saying is, it's the, your faith has, I've given you your faith, that's what the church is built on. Is that what you're saying, Ranzel? And he's using a play on words? Much, yeah. yeah. Yeah, well, the truth of who Christ was, and his confession, yeah. But I agree with you. Okay to say the way as long as we're not talking to Peter above what he is. Right. And that's simply a man. Right. Who had his own struggles and weaknesses and clearly. Right. Wasn't in any way divine. Right. Definitely a position of leadership. Yeah. In that in any leadership body that may be equal in authority, there's always gonna be men who mm-hmm. rise up with gifts. I think so too. And at that point, at that point, uh, the only difference that I see when Peter and the other apostles was at that point was his faith. That's mm-hmm. what made the difference. Yeah, and it's actually the climax of this book in Mark eight, nineteen or twenty, when they say, "Who do you? Who do they say I am?" And he said, "You are the Christ." That that's the the, the climax of this book. Go ahead. Right, we'll get to that in a minute. Yeah, he, he failed pretty miserably. He failed almost worse than any of the other. Yeah, a slipper. <laughs> but just to, to, to um, further the imagery of the rock, you know, in, in you had mentioned it in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20, is where, it, well, I'll read verse 19. So then, this is when um, Paul's writing to the Ephesians. You are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, like the foundation of the apostles and Peter, right? The rock guy. Uh, Christ Jesus, though, being, being the cornerstone. So he's the ultimate, I guess, cornerstone of the foundation is Christ. So, either way, he did have a strong personality, and he was used mightily in the early church. The whole first half of Acts is basically Peter's ministry, Pentecost. You see him clearly as the leader. Okay, then uh, in Mark, the second person listed is James. 
and John, brothers, and Mark's the only one that calls them the sons of thunder or Boandries. And the thought behind that is, anybody have heard why they're called the sons of thunder? There's a couple different theories behind it. That's one theory. One theory is that they, they had deep voices and they could preach. And Any other ideas? Yeah, maybe they called on wrath. And that, uh, if you look at Luke chapter 9, uh, I think it's verse 54. We can uh, fill out their personality a little bit. Okay, this is when uh, they're traveling and Jesus is going to Jerusalem with his uh, apostles. He sends messengers ahead of him and they go into Samaria and they don't receive him because he was traveling toward Jerusalem. It says, verse 54, when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? And he turned and rebuked them and said, you do not know what kind of spirit you are of, for the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went on to another village. So uh, they may have been called the sons of thunder because they had this wrath. They wanted to get people. I'm going to throw lightning bolts at people for not receiving Jesus. So they had that attitude. And then also, too, we read, and I um, can't remember who it is, they, uh, they ask to sit at Jesus' right and left hand. They request that. He says, no, that's not for uh, you to decide. Uh, but who's least among you will be the greatest. So they may have had this just sort of aggressive uh, personality as well. Clearly, mama's boys. Mama the mom did it. Where was that? I tried to find out last night. When the mom asked if, yeah, I thought I actually when I, I think it's in John, when I was teaching through, I thought well maybe they're called sons of thunder because their mom was thunder. But um, I didn't ever say that. <laughs> but I thought that when I read that, I can't remember where it is. But nevertheless, they're called the sons of thunder. The other idea, if you think about it, the first apostle who was martyred was James. And um, he may have been thunderous. He may have been the most visible at that point in time and may have been out there. And that's when Herod said, you know, get him. So that's another idea. But the point is they're brothers. And often James is listed first. And John, of course, is the apostle John who wrote John. Uh, but often James is listed first. So you have those four are in the first group. The second group always starts out with Andrew. And Andrew... Um, Peter, I'm sorry, first group, thank, thank you, yeah, Andrew's in the first group, Simon, Peter's brother, thank you. Um, he was called before Peter, you'll see that in John, go to John chapter 1, because that's interesting, we learn a couple things about Andrew and actually Nathaniel, who's Bartholomew, we'll get to him in a minute. So, Andrew was a disciple of John the Baptist, and you see that in John chapter 1, verse 35. Again, the next day, so this is the next day after Jesus is um, baptized, John was standing with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. And Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What do you seek? They said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come and you'll see. And they came and see Verse 40, one of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He found first his own brother Simon and said to him, 
we found the Messiah. So Andrew's called first, and then Andrew tells Peter about Jesus. Uh, the inner circle, when you read about like the transfiguration or when there's a uh, raising of the dead, like uh, Simon Peter's mother, even Lazarus, when Jesus goes with just the few people, it's always Peter, John, and James. There's one scene where uh, Mark mentions Andrew, but for the most part, even though he's Peter's brother, he was called first, he's a little bit out from the inner circle of those three. Second fiddle a little bit to that, those first three. Okay, the second group, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, and Thomas. Uh, Philip, also in, I think, John 1, we learn he's from Bethsaida, the same town as um, Peter and Andrew. And, yeah, if you're still in John chapter 1, we'll just read about Philip. Verse 44, Philip was from Bethsaida of the city of Andrew and Peter. Um, you always see Bartholomew and Philip listed together in the list of the apostles, all right? I think Barth Bartholomew is Nathaniel, same name, same person, different name. And the reason you think that is because of John 1.45, Philip found Nathaniel and said to him, We found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth. Nathaniel said to him, Can any good thing come? So Philip and Nathaniel are close here in John chapter 1. And Nathaniel is found by Philip, and I think Nathaniel is the same as Bartholomew because these two are always listed together. You also see Nathaniel in chapter 21, verse 2 of John. When John lists um, in the last chapter, obviously, Verse 1, after these things, Jesus manifested himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias, and he manifested himself in this way. And then he lists some of them here. Simon Peter, Thomas, Didymus, Nathaniel of Cana, and the sons of Zebedee, and two others. So Nathaniel's listed here. So Nathaniel and Bartholomew, same person. You have Matthew. He's listed in all the uh, accounts. And then you have Thomas, also called Didymus. He's only mentioned by name in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. You see him once in each where he's listed, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But in John, he actually speaks and has a real personality. And so Thomas is the same, Doubting Thomas. Um, in John chapter 11, we read about him. He's the one that says, uh, let me find that. Thomas, it's verse 16 of chapter 11, just after Lazarus. Thomas, who is called Didymus, said to his fellow disciples, let's also go so that we may die with him. So he's saying he's going to die with Jesus. So he's a courageous fella. Yeah, he had a strong personality in some ways. In chapter 14, verse 5, we read about Thomas also of John, where he says, Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How do we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. So Jesus comforting his disciples, comforting Thomas there. And then in John chapter 20, several verses talk about him. This is a doubting Thomas section. Uh, let's see. 
Someone help me. Where is that? Uh, 21. Verse 24. Yeah, thank you. Thomas, one of the twelve called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples were saying to him, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see his hands and the imprint of the nails and put my finger in the place of his na- of the nails, put my hand into his side, I will not believe. So that's doubting Thomas. So those guys... These, this first four, then you have those four, and then the last four, I uh, wish I had my chart, but James, the son of Alphaeus, is listed. Thaddeus, this is confusing because Thaddeus is also a Judas. He's called the Judas, the son of James in Luke and Acts. And then he's elsewhere mentioned as Judas, not Iscariot. So he has three different names in the Gospels. He's Thaddeus. He's Judas, the son of James. He's Judas, not Iscariot, to distinguish him from the other Judas. Uh, Simon the Zealot. He may have been a zealot as a part of this zealous party, political party in Jerusalem. Or he may have just had a zealous personality. Not sure which, but he's called several times Simon the Zealot. And then the last, of course, is Judas, the son of Simon, Judas Iscariot. Always called a betrayer. Every time you see his name, you'll see betrayer. In the same verse or just <coughs> near it. So, uh, eclectic group of people. You probably wouldn't have picked that group of people. Uh, it's interesting. He starts out with Simon, who betrayed Jesus, right? He, he's known to be a betrayer of Jesus and then ends with uh, Judas, a betrayer also. <coughs> Two completely different outcomes because Simon was chosen by the Lord to be the rock. And Judas was um, a betrayer. But um, I think it's interesting how the book ends or the list of the apostles. Uh, none of these <coughs> men are holy in and of themselves. They're all sinful people. You can see by some of these things we've read, they're all weak vessels. And um, yet the Lord chose them and empowered them through his spirit, just like uh, Joel taught us today. Kim, yes. Not, not to beat a dead horse. <laughs> yes. Back on Simon. Do you find some Which, scriptures where he is referred to as the rock as opposed to a stone? The, the only verses I article and the definite article. Uh, the, the only article, ver- you know, <coughs> it does go to the heart of the theological controversy, obviously. Yes, I think I see your point. I can't really answer it. The only verses I know the offhand are the ones that I've mentioned in Matthew sixteen eighteen. Peter, you are. Are you saying that's an indefinite article? Yeah, in John one um, verse forty two. You are Simon the son of Jonah, you shall be called Cephas, which is translated a stone. Yeah. I was wondering so, if you saw somewhere in Scripture where he's actually referred to him as a stone. I don't, I can't answer it. I probably, no, okay. I guess would be the answer. But I think I, I get your point, and I, I just want to be sure that no one thinks that I think he is the divine um, pope for the church. Is that what you're getting at? No, I know, I know you don't believe that. Yeah, okay. <laughs> so all those people hearing this, that, that uh, I think that the main point, we all agree he's got this personality of being strong, that we're saved by faith, and Peter's faith is, is, could be the rock of the church because that is what saves us. And uh, as far as definite and indefinite articles, I have to research it more. Any other input on Peter the Rock? Well, his reaction meter seems to be set a little higher than some uh-huh. of the other apostles. I mean, he'll 
blurred out. Right. Stuff, so. Yeah. Yeah. Off the cuff kind of guy. Betray you. Right. I mean, it makes me just want to go there. We'll get way ahead of ourselves, but go to Mark chapter 8. We'll, um, it's really the climax of the book, Matthew, Mark chapter 8. To your point here, uh, I'll start at verse 27 of chapter 8. Jesus went out along with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he questioned his disciples, saying to them, Who do people say that I am? They told him, saying, John the Baptist, others say Elijah, but others one of the prophets. And he continued by questioning them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said to him, you are the Christ. And he warned them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man, here, here, to your point, you're the Christ. You're, I see it. You are the Christ. And so Jesus continues to teach that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he was stating the matter plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning around and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests but man's. So, yes, from um, the heights to the depths is the way Peter can off will go. Okay, so any other questions about the 12 uh, apostles? I think it's interesting that, you know, with Judas that actually caused some skeptics today to question the sovereignty of God. You know, why in the world would he pick one that he knew would be a betrayer? But the lessons, you know, for us that understand the sovereignty of God that how that plays out in that whole story is quite interesting. Mm -hmm. I think you can get some really interesting dialogue with skeptics. Uh, well, you know, if he's really God, why would he pick a dud? You know, that type of thing. It's hard. I mean, I was reading in, um, you know, when he sends, when he commissions the apostles to go out and cast out demons and heal, Judas is apparently one of them doing that. So it is really hard to get our minds wrapped around, but it's God's sovereign plan to, um, well, to get... I guess, you know, you could say with that, um, you know, he's, he doesn't necessarily always use a redeemed person to accomplish his will. He can accomplish his will with any or anything or anybody. Right. He used a donkey for Salem. Right. He used Pharaoh. Yeah. Jesus <laughs> Rulers and leaders, governments. And me, the, the life of Judas validates God's sovereignty because of the role that he played in. in right. You know, just, so it's, it really puts your mind in a knot if you think about it. Is, but um, was Judas aware? You know, was he right. deceived? 
even in his own faith, which scares, you know, should, you know, be a warning to us today in regards to yep. our motives and our own faith if we're being, if we're on the rock. Yes. Which rock am I referring to? <laughs> well, it's a great point. Maybe we can get to it next week when we study the... Um, the unforgivable sin of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, and that's a difficult passage to understand, but um, it will humble us and challenge us to understand what that, what that really means. So we'll have to stop today, but next week, if you can read ahead, uh, try to figure out when Jesus says, or when it says in verse 21, when his own people heard of this, who do you think he's referring to? His friends or his family? But that's the next group I want to get to today, but we're not going to get to it. The next group is his family and what they think of Jesus' ministry. All right, any other questions? Thanks for coming. We'll see. Oh, no, next week we have the single service Sunday, and then so we'll meet back here in two weeks.